Welcome back to the Minute Women podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And this is our third installment of what's becoming just like sad story month. Uh, yeah. Because we are doing war commemoration stories for the month of November. Yeah, we are. Because, you know, thank you to all of our veterans who helped yeah. give us a safe, nice place to live. This is our shout out to you. Yeah. And it's also the first time we've gotten to record just us in, in a, a while. while. I know. It's, it's really excellent nice. having guests on. Like, yes. Thank you to Canadian Politics. This is boring. Thank you to North of Normal. Thank you to Canar Bell. Uh, but you know, it's good to just chill with you, Linnea. Oh, every Grace, once in a while, it's nice to just it's nice to just hang with you. Yeah, it's not, it's not like I don't see you the rest of the time. <laughs> I mean, it's not like we weren't <laughs> just like hanging out all morning, but now it's recorded and it sounds really loud in my headphones, which is yeah. great. But uh, how was your weekend? <laughs> it was good. I went home to Cape Breton. Nice, curled nice. in a curling bond spiel. Yeah, you're a big winner. Won that sucker. Yeah, you did. Yeah, it's it's a such a like. Just a community bond spiel. Tell our fans what you've won. Oh, well, as winners of the Coors Light Mixed <laughs> Fall Spiel at the Sydney Curling Club, I have won a actually a pretty like legit big cooler backpack branded with Coors Light. Nice. <laughs> My favorite beer. <laughs> uh, I've really sold out. And a $25 gift card to the Nova Scotia Liquor Corporation. Oh. Which, ooh. Don't know what I'm going to buy with it yet, (laughs) but you can be sure it's going to be one of the many Coors Molson products uh, that stock our shelves. Thank you to Coors. (laughs) You're like a sponsored athlete. (laughs) (laughs) Except it's with like a company that has no business being involved in athletics in any way. Curling is like the only sport where that's acceptable. Or darts. Or darts, bowling. Yep. Golf, maybe. 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 Golf's pretty classy. Yeah, they the Masters was this weekend. It sure was. Who won? Mm. Oh wait, it's it's Wayne Gretzky's daughter's husband. Was it? Yeah. Okay. I just heard my dad say that. <laughs> I should have known. But Tiger got to put the green jacket on. Oh, he did. Like, yeah, because it's the last person. Oh, like, so he like passed it so on. So you like you put it on the next guy. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's nice. Yeah, nice for Tiger. Nice for Tiger. <laughs> So you want to get into this episode? Yeah. The last couple have been really depressing, so I am ready. I'm in comfy clothes and feeling cozy, (laughs) ready to cry. Yeah. So this one is also depressing, but more in like a global, like corporate level sense. Not so much like individual story. That's really, really sad. Okay. Um, We are doing uh, Dextre's On the Congo or Of the Congo. Which is a very obscure heritage minute that I don't think it's played very much anymore. I don't even know if I've seen it. So essentially the premise is it's these Congo or Congolese rebels who have captured missionary workers and and some like I think foreign aid workers in this house and there is clearly some kind of like commotion of like people are coming to the house and they're gonna like try and rescue the people and you just see the Congolese rebels like threatening the missionaries and like radioing each other and then busts in like these UN peacekeepers led oh, by a guy okay. named Jacques Dextres yeah who was um the lead of that mission and they're like blue berets and they come in yes. and save the day. Okay, I have seen this um, minute. Yeah, so I was just like, wow, this guy must be like a really significant figure in military history in Canada. And he, he kind of is. He's, he's definitely a high ranking guy. Um, but what I wound up 
searching more into is United Nations peacekeeping and why we should definitely not be proud of our participation. Okay. In United Na- I don't know why this is a proud part of Canadian history because everything <laughs> I've read is just like, oh, this is just like modern colonialism. Yeah. <laughs> not good. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, um, we're going to kind of. We're going to talk mostly about United Nations peacekeeping in in the Congo. And we're going to rip it apart. And we're kind of going to tear it to shreds. And I will say as a disclaimer, like, this is not any, like, statement against individuals who are part of the peacekeeping corps. Like, I mean, they don't get to choose where they go or what they do. And it's the same with soldiers in the most part. You're just kind of like a cog in a machine. Uh But the United Nations peacekeeping force is a controversial organization, to say the least. Okay. So we're going to talk about their development a little bit and their involvement in the Congo crisis, which took place in the 1960s, and that's where this minute is set. Okay. So peacekeeping by the United Nations is a role held by the Department of Peace Operations as, quote, a unique and dynamic instrument developed by the organization as a way to help countries torn by conflict to create the conditions for lasting peace. So at the end of this story, I want you to tell me if they've helped create conditions for lasting peace. <laughs> okay. It's such like a, it's like, well, of course you describe yourself that way. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It is distinguished from peace building, peacemaking, and peace enforcement, although the United Nations does acknowledge that all activities are mutually reinforcing and that overlap between them is frequent in practice. Peacekeepers monitor and observe peace processes in conflict post-conflict areas and assist ex-combatants in implementing the peace agreements that may have been signed. Such assistance comes in many forms, including confidence-building measures, power-sharing arrangements, electoral support, strengthening the rule of law, and economic and social development. So it's not all military. Um, Accordingly, United uh, Nations peacekeepers, often referred to as the Blue Berets or the Blue Helmets because of their light blue berets or helmets, can include soldiers, police officers, and civilian personnel. And um, when you say beret, you mean like... Like their hat. Like it's a hat. Like yeah. It's, it's a beret. Like, yeah. Do you remember when peacekeepers were on the $5 bill? Yes. I always think that's so... Like, I remember in a history course that I took in my undergrad... Something that my professor was very adamant about was like Canada is no different than like the United States in the sense that we're we have a military culture. Yeah. Um, and something that a lot of people use as a way to distinguish themselves as or distinguish Canada from the United States is by saying we're peacekeepers, not military. Uh, we have a peacekeeping culture, not a military culture. Okay. And how just like flagrantly untrue that is. Like there's way more men and women serving in the Canadian Armed Forces than there are ever who served with United Nations peacekeepers. Um, So he's just like, it's just preposterous that that's what would wind up on our $5 bill. Yeah. As like this like idea that we're peacekeepers, even, even if they are as benevolent and good as they advertise themselves as. It's like, just statistically, it's not true. It's not true. (laughs) Yeah. The founders of the UN envisioned that the organization would act to prevent conflicts between nations and make future wars impossible. 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 (laughs) Impossible. (laughs) Was that written on something? Like, was that an official document? (laughs) Yeah. We're going to uh, make war impossible. War will be impossible. We're all going to be friends, and everybody's going to be happy, and it's just going to be love and rainbows, and no (laughs) war ever again. We've had our last war. We did it, guys. peace. World peace. (laughs) 
However, the outbreak of the Cold War made peacekeeping agreements we extremely difficult. We were wrong. <laughs> so wrong. They just like sign the document, turn around, and just rushes there. It's like, oh, oh no. no. <laughs> Guys, it's just go like. Go away, go away. It's just the United States and Russia staring at each other from across the room. And they're like, no more wars, right, guys? And they're like, I won't go to war if they don't go to war. Like, well, yeah. I won't go to war if they don't go to war. And like, okay, <laughs> great. Sounds like we're all in agreement. <laughs> so peacekeeping was made really difficult by the Cold War because there was just these, the world was divided into these really hostile political camps. Okay. Following some unofficial deployments, the first UN peacekeeping mission was a team of observers deployed to the Middle East in 1948 during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. Observers with guns? Um, I don't think they have guns yet. Okay. So they're just going in. Okay. They're, if they're armed, it's very minimal. <laughs> they do start out with some He's got sense a of like knife. He's got a Swiss Army knife. <laughs> when the, when it does start out, I do think they start with this idea that like we shouldn't escalate conflicts by adding weapons. <laughs> so they're just there. Um, the mission was officially authorized on May 29th. The group, um, the UN Truce Supervision Organization, UNSO. <laughs> there's a lot of acronyms oh, in this military. Anything in the military. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, the UNSO continues to monitor the situation as, and has provided observers for a number of conflicts in the region since then. So they're still there, which is also like, I don't think you've established circumstances for continuing peace if you're still there yeah. over 60 years later. Yeah. Uh. I don't think you did it. No. I think it's time to go home. In 1949, observers were deployed to the border of India and Pakistan in a similar mission after the Indo-Pakistani War of 1947. They also continued to monitor that border. In 1950, the UN faced one of its greatest early challenges when North Korea invaded South Korea starting the Korean War. The Soviet Union was at the time boycotting the UN in protest over the Chinese seat being occupied by the Republic of China rather than the People's Republic of China. So that's like... Uh, the, I guess, the, the democratically elected Chinese government oh, okay. versus the communist Chinese government. Oh, so Russia's like, we only like communists. Yeah, we're only going to observe. We, we recognize the People's Republic of China as yeah. the legitimate government of China. Yeah. We like vodka and dictators. <laughs> <laughs> I send you to Siberia. <laughs> Have you ever heard of gulag? <laughs> you might like it. Not like goulash. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> it was therefore unable to veto the authorization of member states to assist in the defense of South Korea. So because the Soviet Union is having a hissy fit and not participating in the United Nations, they were unable to veto the United Nations being like, we're going to help the not communist government. Right. So they went and helped the not communist government. <laughs> The United Nations forces pushed the North Koreans out of the South and made it to the Chinese border before the Chinese People's Volunteer Army intervened and pushed the UN back to the 38th parallel. But how? How are they, like, making any ground or taking up any ground? Are they just like, 
you go stand over there. <laughs> yeah. And like, then they're just like, oh, you don't you don't want to do that? Oh, okay, bye. Like, okay, bye. I'll just go now. <laughs> they, they have, like, some level of militarization in these, like, early conflicts. Yeah. But the whole point was that they shouldn't. Right. Like, they, they shouldn't be a military force. They should be, like... Observers, like peace observers. I'm just so I just got this. They're like the refs of war. I just got this visualization of this Canadian peacekeeper. You know how like people like hold their hand under their shirt and pretend it's a gun, but it's but it's a, but it's like a small jug of maple syrup, and they're just <laughs> back off, buddy. Maple syrup mafia <laughs> yeah. has reemerged, and then they're like, "That's not the gun." They're like. No, it's not. It's maple syrup. Do you want some? But it's like, you know, like in those things where people think they shoot them and like the Bible stops it. Yeah. It's just maple syrup <laughs> and it's just gushing. It's like, it's like, oh, this is this is so sticky. This is going to take forever to get out. My mom's not going to be happy. Oh, God. <laughs> not Susan. So although a ceasefire was declared in 1953, U.N. forces remained along the demilitarized zone until 1967 when American and South Korean forces took over. Okay. In 1956, the U.N. responded to the Suez crisis with oh, the... I know that one. That's, that's in That's in. We Didn't Start the Fire. <laughs> Correct. Trouble in the Suez. Yes, yeah, that's the song. <laughs> That's a great song. I mean, it like actually does catalog a we lot did that of in uh, my important events. Global history class. We all had to have a verse and draw a picture on it. Is it is it just like a collection of headlines? Is that how it was written? I, I think so. Like it's just it, it's yeah. And I don't know if it was a collection of headlines or just like big news stories, pop yeah. culture. It's more. It's more. I would say like a little bit more like pop culture-y in that it's like war, but in like the very like layman's terms of like things like going the nineteen. 19- 60s kind of mm-hmm. I guess the song didn't come out then who, who sings it it's Billy Joel Billy Joel okay yeah um so the UN responds to the Suez crisis with the United Nations emergency force to supervise the withdrawal of invading forces uh United Nations emergency force as a peacekeeping force was initially suggested as a concept by Canadian diplomat and future Canadian prime minister Lester Pearson oh Lester B yep as a means of resolving conflicts between states. He suggested deploying unarmed or lightly armed military personnel from a number of countries under UN command to areas where warring parties were in need of a neutral party to observe the peace process. So this is like the modern concept of peacekeeping. Okay. Um, it's, it's proposed by Lester B. Pearson. Wow. Um, and for this, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1957 for his work in establishing UN peacekeeping operations. The they had nothing to give the peace prize to that year. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, it's just like so untested. Yeah. It's like, I, that's like, yeah. being. It's like, I've got an idea. That's like being given like, a gold medal in the yeah. Olympics for training. Yeah. For, for like registering, for yeah. qualifying. <laughs> for registering. <laughs> yeah. You've just thought about it. Yeah. He was like, I think I'm going to run the marathon <laughs> and I'm going to do it faster than anyone's ever done it before. And they're like, gold medal. Gold medal. <laughs> Power positive thinking. But yeah, they clearly had nothing. They were like, oh, what do we got? Well, this Canadian almost prime minister has an idea. He has an idea that we think is going to be pretty great. Done. <laughs> so the. Engrave it. 
The UNEF was the first official armed peacekeeping operation modeled on Pearson's ideas. Since 1956, most UN peacekeeping forces, including those called observer missions, have been armed. So it's in the 1950s that they start to become more militarized. Okay. Throughout the Cold War, the tensions on the UN Security Council made it difficult to implement peacekeeping measures in countries and regions seen to relate to the spread or containment of leftist or revolutionary movements. Okay. So anything having to do with communism, <laughs> basically the UN Security Council can't respond to. Right. Or it makes it really difficult because they'll just get vetoed by uh, the Soviet Union. Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Cheaper by the Dozen? I have. Well, I've seen the Steve Martin one. Yeah, the version, yeah, yeah, the newer yeah. One. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah, and th- but there's this scene where he's like trying to find out who did something, and he pretends he has like a lie detector, and he goes like beep, <laughs> beep, beep over all the kids' heads, and then he gets to the one out, and he's like beep, 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 beep. That is McCarthyism. Okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> you're free to go. We can't deal with you. You've been fired because yeah. we decided you're communist. It's like, yeah. but I I just went to a poetry reading. It's like, no, no. No, no. You're communist and maybe gay. <laughs> so you gotta go. You can't we can't be seen with you. Please give, leave. You will give all of our secrets away. And I might catch it. I might catch the communism. <laughs> And definitely the gay. (laughs) (laughs) Because we know that one's contagious. Um, While some conflicts were separate enough from the Cold War to achieve consensus support for peacekeeping missions, most were too deeply enmeshed in the global struggle. The UN peacekeeping force in Cyprus began in 1964 and attempted to end the conflict between ethnic Greeks and Turks on the island and prevent wider conflict between NATO members, uh, Greece and Turkey. So, you know, they're, they're out there. Yeah. A second observer force, Unipom. Unipom. Yeah. Was also <laughs> dispatched in 1965 uh, to the areas of the India-Pakistan border um, that were not being monitored by the earlier mission that we talked about. Hmm. So, you know, like, neither of these have anything to do with Cold War ideologies, so they can, like, participate okay. in those. The UN also assisted in two decolonization programs during the Cold War. And the first is the one that we're going to talk about. Okay. So the first began in 1960 when the UN sent the United Nations operation in the Congo to help maintain stability and prevent the breakup of the country during the Congo crisis. Okay. So the story of Congolese colonization um, begins in the 1800s with Belgian control of the Congo. Um, And it's probably the most brutal example of colonization in history. Okay. We don't talk about the Belgians that much in terms of big bad guy countries, but they really nailed colonialism. (laughs) They were like late to the game, but hot. Like (laughs) They're like, how can we really brutalize (laughs) millions of people in a very short period of time? Uh. Um, they had working groups on it. Little yeah. think tanks. Yeah. They, you know, they were standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. And they really perfected the mold. Um, so with the goal of exploiting the Congo's natural resources, particularly rubber, Belgium, under King Leopold II, and with the support of other Western countries, uh, established the 
Congo Free State in 1865. The Congo Free State um, was not very free, despite the name. Um, It operated as a corporate state privately controlled by Leopold II through a non-governmental organization, the Association Internationale Africaine. Okay. Under Leopold II's administration, the Congo Free State became a humanitarian disaster. So if you've ever read Heart of Darkness, that's this. Yeah. (laughs) The saddest book ever written is about this. Haven't read it, but aware of it. It's the the book that the movie um, Apocalypse Now is based on, but they move it to Vietnam. Right. Um, Because... Who wants to talk about Belgium? Because that's not about the United States. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't include us, so we're just going to not do it. (laughs) It's like, but what if we made it about our humanitarian disaster? (laughs) The lack of accurate records makes it difficult to quantify the number of deaths caused by the ruthless exploitation and the lack of immunity to new diseases introduced introduced by contact with European colonists. Failure to meet rubber collection quotas was punishable by death. Um, Meanwhile, the... Rubber collection? Like the tree? Yes. So they basically enslaved a whole country of Congolese, indigenous Congolese, who then had to work for the government collecting rubber. Um, And basically, Leopold knew that... So there's there's two ways that you can collect rubber. Um, Rubber can be collected through the vine of a plant, or it can be collected through rubber trees. Yeah. Uh, rubber trees is far more stable. Um, you get way more rubber out of it, but it takes longer to establish rubber farms because you have to grow the trees. And right. so most of the rubber today in the world comes from South America, um, where we have rubber tree plantations. But at this point in time, the vines are already there. So Leopold knew that he only had 20 years to be the the major like rubber supplier yeah for the world so he was like let's do this hard and let's do this fast okay and let's get as much rubber as possible i don't care how many people we kill and then they were just out because they knew that south america was going to dominate the market once the trees were grown um yeah it's just brutal capitalism okay what's belgium like now um, it's a beautiful country that is built on blood money. Okay. <laughs> like all of its national museums. And, stuff. and not to say that like other Have colonial like, countries are better, but. Yeah. Are they like less proud of their colon? Like, are they proud of their colonialism or are they um, like. I don't think they're proud of it, but mm. they very much peg it on King Leopold II. They're yeah. like, that was that guy. Yeah. That's not the I rest mean, of like, Belgium. White people love to travel to Belgium. Yeah, it's absolutely. Like, it's not like it's like a. Yeah, it seems like a fairly touristy, like nice place. That's not like. Yeah, because it's small. It's gorgeous. Yeah, and all of these beautiful public buildings are built right. on rubber money. Right. Um, yeah, isn't that nice? Yeah, which is the reality for a lot of white Western nations. Yeah, but um, with the Congo, it's it, it's interesting with. The Belgium and the Congo because you really can just trace it all to this like one thing. One, one dude. So because it's less complicated, I think it's easier to criticize. But I mean, Britain's the yeah. exact same way. Like France is the exact same way. Germany's the same way. Like, um, yeah. and during this time, Africa, it's like the the opening of Africa, I guess, to colonial markets. Right. And so Africa becomes colonized very yeah, quickly. We're not bringing you over here to be slaves anymore, but we're going to yeah. come... We're going to come to you. you are. <laughs> Don't worry. You can watch your family die in your native country. Yeah. Isn't that great? We're not going to put you on a boat this time. 
Don't worry. Don't worry. We're just going to cut off your hands. Yeah. Because, um, so because. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> segue. <laughs> because, because rubber quotas were punishable by death, the force publique, which was like the police force that um, managed the Congolese pop- population, they were, um, to, to save munitions, mm-hmm. um, they had to prove that they had killed the person, so they would take their hand. They would take their hand, and then they had to prove it because munitions were so short that they didn't want soldiers saying, like, oh, yeah, don't worry, I went and killed those people, but then they actually just took the munitions and went hunting or something and, like, used the munitions yeah. for personal gain. Which is what they were doing, I'm which, assuming. Which they were doing, um, but because you prove it by a hand, yeah. what they would do instead is, rather than killing the person, they would just take their hand yeah. and leave them either to bleed out or live the rest of their life just mutilated without a hand. So there's this huge contingent of the Congolese population that has like only has one hand Jesus. for such a long period of time. Yeah, it's insane. It's just like... That's not okay. No. Like, that's just so uncool. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't... I don't like that. No, it's just like, let's see how brutal we can get. Let's, like, encourage Not even that. just a finger. No, 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 no. A hand. 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 Ugh. So, um, like I said earlier, records aren't super accurate, but under Belgium rule, it's estimated, and this is kind of like the conservative estimate, is that 10 million Congolese died under Belgian rule. Jesus. By the turn of the century, however, the violence of the free state officials against indigenous Congolese and the ruthless system of economic extraction had led to an intense diplomatic pressure on Belgium to take official control of the country, which it did in 1908, creating the Belgian Congo. Okay. So it gets a little better, um, but now it's more just like a normal Western colonized country. So it's still like highly segregated, highly racist. Um, And it's very suppressive to the native Congolese population, which results in a nationalist movement in the Belgian Congo, which demanded the end of colonial rule. Um, And this led to the country's independence on the 30th of June, 1960. Okay. Minimal preparations have been made in many... 1960, like this is like real life. Yeah, like this isn't ancient history. There are lots of people who were born in the 60s alive right now. Yeah, there's (laughs) plenty of people we know that were born into like the Congo not being an independent country. Yeah. Um, And that's true for a lot of Africa. A lot of Africa is colonized late and they get their independence quite late from a lot of Western countries. Yeah. So they've established independence, but there wasn't a lot prepared and there's a lot of internal issues in the Congo. So Mm -hmm. there's federalism, tribalism, ethnic nationalism, because similar to like Canada, for instance, it's just kind yeah. of a political decision as to what is and is not Canada. Right. It's not based on ethnic lines. Right. And so in the Congo, Congolese people is a very like colonial notion to begin with because those people aren't necessarily ethnically related to each other right. anyway. Um, so there's a lot of like infighting within the Congo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just a week after independence is declared, a mutiny broke out in the army and violence erupted between black and white civilians. The So Belgium sent troops to protect fleeing white um, civilians from okay. the Congo. Um, so Katanga and South Kasai. So these are two, I guess you could kind of say like provinces of the Congo, but okay. not like formal provinces. Um, okay. So they cede from Belgian support. So these are like two examples of like, 
people with either like ethnic nationalism or like for tribal reasons. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be part of the Congo. They want to have like their own country. Yeah, they're like, see ya. Yeah, they're like, bye. This is messed up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to lose a hand. Bye bye. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I, people talk about giving an arm and a leg for a cause. Literally, yeah. guys. Come on. <laughs> Amid continuing unrest and violence, the United Nations deployed peacekeepers. The Secretary uh, General of the UN, which, okay, one of the coolest names we're going to hear on the podcast. Ready. Dag Hammerskjold. Dag is his Dag first is name? Dag is his first name, Dag. and his last name is Hammerskjold. Dag. Dag, D-A-G. <laughs> Dag Not even Nebbit. a double G. <laughs> nope. <laughs> he wanted done. We're out. He wanted done. <laughs> um, he believed that the crisis would provide the organization with a chance to demonstrate its potential as a major peacekeeping force and encouraged the sending of a multinational contingent of peacekeepers to the Congo under the UN command. Because that's a good way to talk about civil war. I was going like, to say. what a great opportunity. <laughs> um. <laughs> it now makes so much more sense that his name is Dag. <laughs> I love it. He's just like, okay, guys, you know, we could see this glass half empty, but glass half full. Great opportunity for I'm, us. I'm picturing him as a professor or doctor Doofenshmirtz from Phineas and Ferb. <laughs> He's yeah. Yeah. The UN peacekeeping force. <laughs> yeah. I think he's like, I, I think he's Scandinavian. Oh, oh, like me. Yeah, maybe his wife was Linnea. Yeah, I wonder Linnea what he, Swinehammer. Yeah, what does he hammer? Skulds. I don't know oh, what a yeah. skuld is. Hammer skuld. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, hammer skuld's super excited about it. And on July fourteenth, the UN Security Council adopted Resolution One Four Three, calling for total Belgian withdrawal from the Congo and their replacement with a UN commanded force. So they're like, all right, Belgium, mm-hmm. y- you've had your day in the sun. It's time to get out. I, it's time for the UN to take over this kind of colonial thing. <laughs> it's our turn. <laughs> the main military focus of the mission was to preserve the territorial integrity of the Congo. So they're very anti-secessions. So like okay. South Kasai and Katanga, like that's what they're trying to avoid. Right. They want to keep the Congo united. They were able to prevent breakaway portions of the country from seceding and helped push the foreign mercenaries who were contributing to political instability. The arrival of the United Nations operation in the Congo, or uh, ONUC, was initially welcomed by Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba, the charismatic leader of the largest nationalist faction and the central government who believed the UN would help suppress the secessionist states. So this is like the Congolese president or Mm. prime minister, excuse me. Anak's initial mandate, however, only covered the maintenance of law and order. Viewing the secessions as an internal political matter, Hammerskjold refused to use UN troops to assist the central Congolese government against them. He argued that doing so would represent a loss of impartiality and breach Congolese sovereignty. Mm. Lamampa also sought the assistance of the United States government of Dwight D. Eisenhower, which refused to provide unilateral military support. Frustrated, he turned to the Soviet Union, which agreed to provide weapons, logistics, and material support. Never turn (laughs) to the Soviet Union. Guess who's still here? That's like, (laughs) that's like, that is, that is the political military version of lamezing yourself. (laughs) It's like, I've got no other options. The U.S. is like, "Mm mm-mm, and then the Soviet Union is like, hey, (laughs) you want guns? (laughs) 
<laughs> That's more German than Russian, but yeah. you know. They were in East Germany. Yeah. <laughs> Around 1,000 Soviet military advisors soon landed in the Congo. Lumumba's actions distanced him from the rest of the government who feared the implications of Soviet intervention. So the Americans also feared that a Soviet-aligned Congo could form the basis of a major expansion of communism into Central Africa. The involvement of the Soviets split the Congolese government and led to an impasse between Lumumba and President Joseph Kasa Vubu. Um, Joseph Desiree Mobutu, uh, who was in command of the army. So if you know the kind of like cultural symbol of like the guy with the fez that's like a leopard print. Yeah. That's him. Oh, so that's up. Joseph Desiree. Okay. Um, so he's in command of the army and he broke this deadlock between the president and the prime minister with a coup d'etat. Ah. Uh, he expelled the Soviet advisors and established a new government effectively under his own control. So he's like a brutal dictator <laughs> with a funny hat, <laughs> which don't they all have funny hats? Um, Napoleon. <laughs> Lumumba was taken captive and subsequently executed in 1961. Oh, bye bye Lumumba. Whoops. Um, so his supporters formed a rival government called the Free Republic of Congo and it had um, Soviet support. So now we have like a full-on civil war yeah. with two governments in the Congo. Now where are the Canadian peacekeepers? <laughs> well, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, so meanwhile, the UN and the actions of ANUC, um, far from establishing peace, contributed significantly <laughs> to the escalation of the Congo crisis during this time. Uh, I'm shocked. It, the UN <laughs> it all seemed so simple. <laughs> so following 1961, the UN took a far more aggressive stance towards the se secessionists. Mm -hmm. um, and this is because Hammerskjold was killed in a plane crash. So Ooh. they've never, I don't think they ever convicted anyone for it, but it was a very like questionable plane crash. Suspicious. Very sus as to why this plane crashed. By this point, the UN had 20,000 people on the ground in the Congo. <laughs> like an army. Oh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not an army. Peacekeepers. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> Look at the blue. Yeah. It's see the, fine. See the hat? Blue. See the hat? As he like sharpens his machete. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody got any hands they don't need? It's like, no, no. We told you not to bring the Belgians. <laughs> When we said multinational, it was implied that we don't bring Belgium. <laughs> so Hammerskjold's successor, which another great name. Okay. I, I don't know if it's pronounced with the TH, but I'm going to. It's U Thant. His first name is just the letter U. <laughs> Shut up. Like U. And his last name is Thant. Does it have those little like dots above the U? No. Oh, okay. Mm -mm. What are those called? Uh 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 It's okay. Something. Those little dots above the U. Oomph. Oomph, 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 uh, yeah. It's something like, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Someone can tell us in the comments oh, it's funny. of our, an our Instagram. Laga, an oomph, an oomph. <laughs> oomph. oomph. <laughs> Anyways, Yu's uh, in town now, and he supported a much more radical policy of direct involvement in the Congo. Okay. Resolution uh, 169 issued on November, uh, or in November of 1961, called for to respond to the deteriorating human rights situation <laughs> and prevent the outbreak of a full-scale civil war. Deteriorating. <laughs> so like new resolution, guys. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's called We Fucked Up the First Time. 
So now we're going to try and make it better. Can we just... With more guns. <laughs> we just need some tape. <laughs> and some glue. Does anybody have any glue? We used all the glue. All on purpose. <laughs> the resolution completely rejected Katanga's claim to statehood and authorized Anuk's troops to use all necessary force to assist the central government of the Congo in the restoration and maintenance of law and order. So now they've just fully taken sides. They're right. like, these are the right ones and we're going to help them. Right. Um, supported by UN troops, Leopoldville defeated secessionists movements in Katanga and South Kasai uh, by the start of 1963. Okay. So more than 300 Canadians served with the UN peacekeeping forces in the Congo. Due to the Congo's time as a Belgian colony, French-speaking peacekeepers were at a premium and Francophone Canadian officers held key positions in the UN command. Mm-hmm. One of those officers was Brigadier General Jacques Dextres, uh, Chief of Staff of the UN Forces in the Congo from 1963 to 1964. Okay. So he's the star of the Heritage Minute. He's in the Minute, minute. yeah. Yeah. Dextres, other than having probably the coolest name that we've talked about, like a Heritage Minute. Yeah, Jacques um, Dextres. Dextres. Was a decorated soldier by the time he arrived in the Congo. Born in Montreal, Quebec, to Jacques and Amanda Dextres, young Jacques joined the Fusiliers Mont-Royal in 1940 at the age of 22 and was quickly called up to serve in the Second World War. Mm. With the 2nd Canadian Infantry Division, he arrived in Normandy following D-Day in July of 1944. By this time, he was in command of the FMR's A Division. Mm. His division engaged in active fighting in the Trovital Farm against seasoned SS troops. On the night of July 31st, his company in a commando operation succeeded in capturing the Church of Saint-Martin-de-Fontenay from a detachment of the 9th SS Panzer Division. I'm assuming a, it does, like, a commando operation doesn't mean they were naked. No. Okay. Um, but, I mean, they might not be wearing underwear. Maybe. 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 We can't, we can't ask him because he's dead. Because uh, oh. everybody we talk about is They're dead. All dead. Um, but I maybe it's in like the obit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird obit. Jacques for sure. Hated wearing underwear. Jacques hated wearing underwear. And completed most of his missions, commando. Total commando. Yeah. <laughs> um, this maneuver is still studied in military schools today. During the final days of the Normandy campaign, the FMR took the Falais region during a series of violent engagements against the Hitler youth of the 12th SS Panzer Division. So they're like fighting kids, which is like a thing that happens in Germany because they run out of men. So they're like, call up the kids. Oh, uh, like in Jojo Rabbit. In Jojo Rabbit, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's who they're fighting. Hi, Jojo. Hi. <laughs> What a great movie. Oh my I God. love that movie so much. So um, well done. In June 1944, 20 Canadian soldiers from the Sherbrooke Fusiliers Regiment and the North Nova Scotia Highlanders were massacred in a garden at the Ardennes Abbey by members of the 12th SS Panzer Division Hitler Youth over the course of several days and weeks. Dextres was deeply affected by the Ardennes Abbey massacre and took it out on the prisoners of war his men captured. In the documentary The Valor and the Honor, Dextres remembers very clearly how his men forced 20 or 85 German prisoners to run for kilometers towards a prison camp and then swim across a river, drowning dozens of them. Uh, none of his men were court-martialed, uh, so yeah, it's a real peacekeeping material. And that's the peacekeeper <laughs> guy doing that. This is the peacekeeper guy. This is his, like, record during World War II. <laughs> Jeez Louise. <sighs> 
For his command in Northwestern Europe, he received the Distinguished Service Order twice, once for Normandy and the other for the Battle of Schwelt. Um, Schwelt. Schwelt. Uh, Following the war, Dextres re-entered civilian life before being recalled to the military in 1950 to develop and control the 2nd Battalion of the Royal 22nd Regiment and lead them during the Korean War. Uh. In Korea, his battalion gained much esteem for its vigorous defense of Hill 355, which was abandoned by U.S. forces under repeated Chinese attacks and left 22 exposed on both flanks. So the 22, the regiment. And I use air quotes, peacekeeping. So this is his military. So, this so is he's his not military. with the UN yet. Um, this so is he's just, not with the UN yet. No, yeah. Okay. He's with the, the Canadian Armed Forces right, right okay. now. Over the course of 96 hours, control of Hill 355 went back and forth between the Americans and the Chinese. The 22nd entrenched themselves in the east and consistently resisted attacks between the 355 and Hill 227. After four days, the Chinese retreated and Hills 355 and 227 were in control of the United Nations. Nice. So they are like helping the United Nations, but it is it's military still. In 1962, Jacques was promoted to the rank of brigadier. In 1963, he became the first Canadian to serve as the chief of staff of the UN forces and went to the Congo. The military component headquarters, coordinated by Dextres, was in the process of planning the mission's withdrawal in early 1964 as the Simba Rebellion loomed. Dextre launched a small-scale operation during the Pierre Mulel's Quilu province uprising of January 1964. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing any of those. Now that needs an acronym. (laughs) The PMK uh, province uprising in order to save at least some of the threatened aid workers and missionaries under under the attack. So by the time he gets there, it's such a shit storm that they're just trying to retreat and save any like civilians that they can let's just go come on we're going we're leaving we gotta go (laughs) we gotta get out of here it's not it's not good here i don't think we did it right (laughs) is this peace are we keeping it right now (laughs) i don't know (laughs) bomb goes off hand grenade gets thrown i don't this isn't what i thought honestly i'm confused (laughs) this is not what the powerpoint said it was gonna be like He also led missions to rescue a group of non-governmental organization personnel who were hostages of the Katangan rebels in the Congo. He was awarded the commander of the Order of the British Empire for his service in the Congo. He was one of Canada's most distinguished peacekeeping commanders. In 1967, he was promoted to Major General and then Lieutenant General in 1968. His son, Richard Paul Dextres, was killed in action in Vietnam on April 23, 1969, where he fought as a Lance Corporal in the United States Marines Corps and was posthumously a recipient of the Silver Star Medal and the Purple Heart. In, yeah. In 1972, Dextres was promoted to the rank of general and became chief of the defense staff of the Canadian Forces for uh, an unusual period of five years. I don't know how long you normally serve, do you mm. know? But... Anyways, five years is not a normal period of time. Okay. He retired from the Canadian forces in 1977, and from 1977 to 1982, he was the chairman of the Canadian National Railway. All colonialism comes back to the <laughs> railway, ladies and gentlemen. We'll always That's have a tie-in. So funny. <laughs> That's um, so funny. 
back in 1978. Love the railway. <laughs> yeah. If you want to go to a great train museum, the train museum in Lunenburg is top notch. Oh, yeah. And that is not a joke. Do they have trains you can go in, like old trains and stuff? Old um, cars? No, it's a model train museum. Oh, even better. And it's, Small trains. It's epic. It's I will epic. say the man who owns it is so lovely. And it's just, it's like, it's his retirement passion project. Oh, I love that. And they're beautiful. And he is so good. Like every kid in the town of Lunenburg has been there. And Are he's they just, like cityscapes? Like Yeah. So, but, it, but it's Lunenburg County. So it's, oh, it's like, so oh, it's, so, so cool. he's made, he, yeah, he's made the railway that used to exist from Lunenburg basically to Halifax. So from Lunenburg County to Halifax. That's so awesome. So it ends at the Halifax train station. Oh, cool. Um, cool. Yeah. And so he does the whole thing in different like glass boxes all throughout this space and he has all of this old memorabilia yeah gotta check it out if you're in Lunenburg especially if you have kids or someone who loves trains the model (laughs) train museum um is spectacular it's uh it's really a little (laughs) hidden gem (laughs) I just love the idea that like Someone is listening to this podcast and hearing about Congolese, like people having their hands cut off. And then they're like, but I will go see that train museum. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a nice light afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's it's definitely worth it. It's such a cute museum. And, he, and it's just a passion project. So it's not right. like, I mean, he doesn't put a lot of effort into um, monotonizing off it because it's just like his joy. It's like in a big old warehouse. Right, right. And uh, oh, it's just, it's such a nice sweet museum yeah so back in 1978 um dextrays was made a companion of the order of canada Mm -hmm. Uh, the dextrays pavilion is a dining hall at the royal military college saint jean um and is named in his honor oh so nice Um, that's what i want a dining hall (laughs) the swinomer dining hall at uh, at acadia (laughs) god general hammer dining (laughs) all pig all the time Bacon. Pork. <laughs> the sign is like Swinomer written in what looks like strips of bacon. <laughs> um, General Jacques Dextres died in 1993 at the age of 73. Oh, right before um, I was born. Right before. So whatever happened to the cargo? What's yeah. going on? So the UN intervention in the Congo was objectively a failure. Yeah. Uh, They left in 1964, peace far from being established. The situation in the Congo has remained troubled. The country (laughs) was renamed Zaire. As really? it was known between 1964 and 1996. Yeah, which is interesting. Like, that I is feel like not one that gets remembered. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it suffered under the dictation dictatorship of Joseph Desiree for decades. Mm-hmm. Like, I've never heard of Zaire, but, like, I obviously have heard of the Congo. Yeah. So that's yeah. weird. The Congo crisis holds great significance in the collective memory of the Congolese people. Mm -hmm. In particular, Mamumba's murder is viewed as a symbolic moment in which the Congo lost its dignity in the international realm and the ability to determine its future, which has since been controlled by the West. Major unrest would erupt again in the mid-1990s as refugees streamed into the uh-huh. eastern portions of the country following the upheavals of neighboring countries of uh, Rwanda. Yeah, the and, Rwandan genocide. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And uh, Burundi. Canada made an effort to alleviate the growing crisis in 1996. So now there's like another crisis happening in the Congo, mm-hmm. which it's just it's never gotten better. It's yeah. just like these peaks of, of, yeah. of issues. Um, so... 
Canadians joined a short-lived multinational force to provide humanitarian aid and help refugees return home. More than 350 Canadians participated in this mission. A violent coup then occurred in the Congo in 1997 Mm -hmm. with ethnic strife and civil war engulfing the country. Mm -hmm. Some reports suggest that up to 3.8 million people died in the subsequent violence. Wow. The UN UN again intervened with a military mission in 1999. Just stop it. That continues to this day. You're not making anything better. When you have to go and you can't leave, you're not doing it right. Yeah, (laughs) you're not. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. Canadian Armed Forces members have been part of these efforts as well, trying to stabilize the region by flying in supplies and personnel, providing mission staff, and supporting humanitarian aid efforts. And so we'll just we'll end with a quote from uh, sociologist Ludo DeWitt, which yes, is on please. the Wikipedia page, I but love I like it. I love a good quote. Yeah. The Congo crisis revealed in one fell swoop the true nature of the powers which shaped large parts of the post-war world. The crisis showed in actual practice the true nature, not only in the former colonial powers, but also of the United Nations, of the recently independent countries united in what was called the Afro-Asian bloc, as well as of Moscow. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just, like, I don't feel like that's a proud part of our national history. Like, I think there are things that I am more proud of as a Canadian, in, like, a, on a serious note, like, there are things that yeah. I'm more proud of as opposed to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it is one of those things of like, this is, this is why so many countries like the West, which is not mm-hmm. a real thing in, in the way that a lot of people like to talk about it, but it's the reason a lot of countries don't trust the West. They don't see Western democracies as mm-hmm. these like beacons of hope for mm-hmm. your country. They're not. Because they're not, because they uh, interfere with the only, yeah. a major reason that those countries are so successful is they just yeah. drown well, other nations. And it's also like, we're not even doing it right here in Canada. No. So what gives us the right to be like, oh yeah, we, we come fix you. Yeah, exactly. We come it's, fix it, everything will be fine. Yeah, it, yeah, it's just such a like lofty, preposterous notion that you can go yeah. into a country without having... Like, like the reason that that country is war torn mm. is very legitimate. There's very legitimate, uh-huh. like ethnic and and like historic reasons why those people yeah. don't get along. Yeah, and for you to presume that you can, that you know better, yeah, and you can just force those people to get along, is such the biggest like I'm a white guy thing yeah. I've ever heard in my ever. life. Like, yeah, every rich yeah. white guy thinks that they can figure out world peace it's yeah. just like so much more complicated than that yeah um and and not mm. to say that i think that again like i don't think pe- like a peacekeeper like if you are a peacekeeper yeah this isn't a criticism of you no. or your mission or like what you do as a person like i'm sure many people and members of the united nations peacekeeping force participate in so much benevolent activity and like the rescuing of aid workers and and civilians obviously is a good thing Mm -hmm. um but the overarching organization i find questionable the roots in which it was built from yeah there are some questions as to how that yes like the activity on the ground can be good Mm. with the purpose and the intent of it being bad yeah. And I, yeah. I think that's kind of how I feel about it at the end yeah, of the day. I would agree. But uh, yeah, colonialism sucks and it's yeah. bad. And it's why people are still like 
deeply, deeply like hurt and offended That's by it. That's t-shirt. Colonialism sucks. Colonialism sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Colonialism, bad it turns out. Yeah, not good. <laughs> not supported by the Minute Women podcast. Yeah, we do not promote colonialism. <laughs> but we do support train museums. Yeah. Very pro train museum. If you, if you need anything. Yeah to take away from this and that's you, what it is if you know of any other train museums oh let us know there's let a lewisburg know. train museum is there now there is um but it's train trains not like Big model trains, trains. Not model. Yeah. um i don't know no. if i've actually been in there to yeah, be honest and his i'm calling it a train museum but it's a museum on the cn railway Right. So it, it's it's mostly like history. And there's a lot of he the man at the Lunenburg Tree Museum has a bunch of artifacts from the trains. So like mm. tea sets and like whatever. My Ooh. grandmother actually because my great grandfather worked at the train on a train. Oh, okay. um, and, and they donated a bunch of his like flatware and stuff sets that he had. From oh, the trains. cool. Yeah. I love that. But uh, colonialism, bad trains. Cool. Yeah, this was when they're not used as clon- tools of colonialism. Yeah, this was actually a good episode. <laughs> yeah, I like, like it's kind of you know but we're it's diving uh, into global politics a little bit, not yeah. so much history. But I like it. I'm I think uh, yeah, Dexter's as an individual, like I, I, I don't have anything particularly harsh to say about him. Yeah, that that drowning the Germans thing was kind of. Uh, sus, not but cool. Not not great, but yeah. I'm sure. Like, I mean, it just seems like he was very honest about something that happened that I'm sure happened all over the Second World War. Like, yeah. I don't mm-hmm. I don't think that the Allied nations were free of war crimes or right. things like that. So it, right. I'm I'm sure for him he was just like, yeah, it happened, and I'm just like owning it. And yeah, which I mean, there's something to be said for that. Yeah, but. Yeah. Uh, it's it's an interesting pick, and it's mm. it's one of the, I believe this is one of the two thousand five um, right one of the more recent, but it's definitely one that doesn't get aired as much anymore. Yeah, um, a lot of those military ones don't get aired very much anymore. I find. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Again, thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Minute Women podcast. Uh, we love our listeners and love your feedback. So if you're not already following us on our social media channels, we are on Instagram at Minute Women Podcast and Facebook at the same name. And then we are on Twitter at The Minute Women. Um, please reach out, send us a message, throw us a like, give us a comment. Let us know what you want to hear more about. If you have any questions for Grace or I or our producer, Mark, just about uh, the podcast in general, we don't know anything about that side of things. So Mark would be your guy. Let us know because we'd love to hear from you and uh, love to chat more. So thank you so much. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all those good things. And if there is the option of leaving us a review, specifically Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Leave us a star rating. Thank you to everyone who has done that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it is a really, really big help to us. Um, And so, yeah, please make sure that you tell all your friends. The word of mouth is the best review. Mm -hmm. And yeah. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. Yeah. Bye. Bye.